Welcome to the election ride home for Tuesday, January 21st, 2020. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman, with a summary of election news. Today, Democrats link arms at a Martin Luther King Jr. march. Sanders apologizes to Biden. How the first four primary states vote. Hillary Clinton disses Sanders in an upcoming documentary series. The New York Times splits the endorsement baby. And your impeachment update with a side serving of milk. It is 13 days until the Iowa caucuses and 286 days until the general election. And here's what you missed today from the campaign trail. The question since last Tuesday's Democratic candidates debate was, has a formal agreement to not attack each other between Senator Elizabeth Warren and Senator Bernie Sanders fallen apart? And more generally, were we going to see more full-throated savaging of Democratic candidates by each other? One ostensible lesson from the bitter 2016 fight between former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton and Sanders for the nomination is that unifying sooner and more forcefully could help bump the needle in the right direction in some key swing states required to achieve Electoral College victory. Sanders and his campaign and supporters maintain he did plenty, and there is some ongoing misinformation that circulates about the timing and nature of his support for Clinton after she clinched the nomination. The hope among Democrats, however, was that there wouldn't even be the slightest smell of a replay, even across a hard-fought primary period. With the disclosure before the debate last week that Warren said that Sanders told her in a private meeting in December 2018 that he didn't believe a woman could win election in 2020, that seemed to overturn the apple cart. Sanders denied saying it. Warren said he did. It came up at the candidates' debate as a question for each, and then pundits analyzed the was it a handshake or not afterwards between the two. Audio was extracted that showed Warren accused Sanders of saying she was lying, and he said the opposite to her. These events are both serious and unimportant. Serious for both in that breaking a non-aggression pact could allow former Vice President Joe Biden to clinch the nomination due to infighting and then potentially harm Sanders and Warren's interest or ability in supporting him in the general election. One hopes and expects not, and Sanders made a firm and strong commitment in the debate to support whomever wins the nomination. The unimportant part is that Sanders and Warren are adults and generally act like it, and the attempt to blow this up is both manufactured by people around each campaign, the candidates, and even campaign staff may be uninvolved, but surrogates and more loosely aligned supporters can stir the pot. So it was with some relief for Democratic voters on Monday morning to see Sanders and Warren shake hands and walk arm in arm talking and laughing at the head of an NAACP parade celebrating the life and work of Martin Luther King Jr. on the national holiday that commemorates his birth. And once again, House member Tulsi Gabbard, also a candidate, provided a positive spin. Warren and Sanders reached across her to shake hands, and Gabbard said, This is the handshake. They weren't the only ones to make nice at the march that started at the Zion Baptist Church in Columbia, South Carolina, and made its way to the State House. Democratic presidential candidates Senator Amy Klobuchar, Biden, former Mayor Pete Buttigieg, former Governor Devil Patrick, and billionaire Tom Steyer were also present. Gabbard, Biden, and Klobuchar linked arms too, and Klobuchar at times had Warren's right elbow. (music) 
Meanwhile, Sanders diffused a separate brewing controversy, apologizing to Biden for an op-ed that appeared in The Guardian by a campaign surrogate that accused Biden of having a, quote, big corruption problem, end quote. Zephyr Teachout, a law professor and a former candidate for office in New York, who has endorsed Sanders, wrote on Monday, quote, Joe has perfected the art of taking big contributions, then representing his corporate donors at the cost of middle and working class Americans, end quote. She chose to term this corruption, a word that's been bandied around now for months about Biden and his son Hunter Biden, alleging with no evidence that either or both were involved in illegal political activities in Ukraine. In fact, this is why we have an impeachment trial going on right now. Sanders apologized in an interview with CBS News. Joe and I have strong disagreements on a number of issues, and we'll argue those disagreements out. Uh, but it is absolutely not my view that Joe is, is corrupt in any way. Uh, and I'm sorry that that uh, op-ed appeared to me. I appeal to my supporters, please, engaged in civil discourse. And by the way, we're not the only campaign that does it. Other people do, you know, act that way as well. But I would appeal to everybody, have a debate on the issues. We can disagree with each other without being disagreeable, without being hateful. Biden replied on Twitter, quote, thanks for acknowledging this, Bernie. These kinds of attacks have no place in this primary. Let's all keep our focus on making Donald Trump a one-term president. South Carolina is an early primary state, and Biden has a commanding lead among black voters and all voters in the state, and a strong lead among black voters nationally. In the other three early voting states, Biden leads in Nevada and Iowa and Sanders in New Hampshire. But the top two to four candidates in each of those three states are still polling within the margin of error of each other. The schedule, by the way, is Iowa on February 3rd, New Hampshire February 11th, Nevada February 22nd, and South Carolina on February 29th. Despite the varying sizes and populations of the states, the number of delegates awarded is not as dramatic a difference as, say, electoral votes. According to Ballotpedia, quote, the number of delegates awarded to each state is determined by a formula that factors the state's popular vote for the Democratic nominee in the previous three elections, the state's electoral votes, and when the state's primary is held, end quote. Pledge delegates are assigned in the caucuses and primary votes through a combination of thresholds, congressional districts, and statewide totals. In the upcoming Iowa caucus, for instance, a candidate must pass 15% in each caucus of the nearly 2,000 Democratic ones to receive a caucus-based delegate. If a candidate's supporters are at less than 15%, they have to pick another candidate in that caucus. Over 11,000 delegates are picked from caucuses and then winnowed to 44 across the three subsequent conventions in the state. Nevada uses a similar but more streamlined system for its 36 pledged delegates. New Hampshire and South Carolina conduct more straightforward direct electorate voting to allocate their 24 and 54 delegates respectively. By the way, Super Tuesday follows South Carolina on March 3rd. That's when the country's two most populous states, California and Texas, join 12 other states and America Samoa in voting. It's the big prize. And according to current polling, Super Tuesday might be the point at which Joe Biden establishes a commanding, if not insurmountable, lead among delegates. Florida, number three in population, doesn't vote until March 17th, along with number six and seven, Illinois and Ohio. New York, the fourth largest state by population, doesn't have its primaries until April 28th, along with Pennsylvania, number five, and the rest of New England and some of the eastern seaboard that hadn't yet cast ballots. The Election Ride Home is brought to you by Plexiderm. 
Flexiderm is a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates your wrinkles, crow's feet, and under eye bags in minutes. This is not surgery. It's not Botox. It is a clear solution for your problem areas. And I know we all have a few of those. Flexiderm offers you smooth, younger-looking skin in minutes. It goes on clear, so nobody knows you're using it. Again, that is a big difference if you've ever looked at surgical stuff for wrinkles and the areas around your eyes. That's where people look, and that's why you're better off with all-natural Plexiderm. Go to tryplexiderm.com and use my code VOICES for 50% off plus an additional $10 off. That's right, 50% off plus an additional 10% off. This offer is also available by calling 1-800-685-1292 and mentioning code VOICES. Plexiderm is backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee. Visit triplexiderm.com today and use code VOICES at checkout. That's triplexiderm.com, code VOICES. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. So I don't want to cover this election like it's a horse race, a game, or a TV show. And and that's not why you're listening to this podcast either. Nevertheless, we would remain less informed if we don't pay attention to outlets that are, so we understand the narrative that is being set which can affect voting outcomes. This morning, a story broke from The Hollywood Reporter about an upcoming four-part Hulu series called simply Hillary, about Hillary Clinton, notably focusing on her 2016 run for president, during which the campaign shot 2,000 hours of video. The notable bit for this election is this question from the publication's reporter who interviewed Clinton in advance of the upcoming streaming of the series at the Sundance Film Festival this Friday, January 25th. Here's the question. In the doc, you're brutally honest on Sanders. Quote, he was in Congress for years. He had one senator support him. Nobody likes him. Nobody wants to work with him. He got nothing done. He was a career politician. It's all just baloney and I feel so bad that people got sucked into it. End quote. That assessment still hold. That's the reporter's question, and Clinton's response is, quote, yes, it does. She goes on to say, when asked about an endorsement, let me read this at length, it's not only him, it's the culture around him. It's his leadership team, it's his prominent supporters, it's his online Bernie bros and the relentless attacks on lots of his competitors, particularly the women. And I really hope people are paying attention to that, because it should be worrisome that he has permitted this culture, not only permitted, he seems to really be very much supporting it, end quote. I don't think this will really royal things, but it's a sore spot from 2016, and it remains a point of contention in 2020. Sanders' campaign and supporters largely believe the notion of Bernie bros is overblown, and a media and opposition creation that amplifies the voices of just some toxic supporters of Sanders and maybe trolls who have no connection to the campaign at all. Supporters of Clinton in 2016 and of several candidates in 2020, but particularly Warren and Klobuchar, point to substantial harassment online, both public and through private messaging, from ostensible Sanders supporters who make vicious comments and sometimes engage in ongoing, relentless waves of attacks. However extreme, it's hard to quantify as a percentage of Sanders supporters or even as an absolute number or which people are necessarily even actually Sanders supporters. 
Clinton's interview has already been spun. CNN posted a tweet that read, quote, Hillary Clinton is not committing to endorsing and campaigning for Senator Bernie Sanders if he's the Democratic 2020 presidential nominee, end quote. Tommy Veter, a spokesperson for the National Security Council under President Barack Obama and one of the founders of the influential political podcast network Crooked Media, tweeted out the CNN message with the text, quote, This is inexcusable. If Bernie wins the nomination, we all need to work our asses off to help him win. If someone else is the nominee, we all do the same for them. Don't kick up this bullshit right before Iowa, especially after complaining about Bernie's lack of support in 2016, end quote. But what did Clinton actually say in the interview? The question asked was, quote, if he gets the nomination, will you endorse and campaign for him? End quote. Her reply, quote, I'm not going to go there yet. We're still in a very vigorous primary season. End quote. To me, that seems like avoiding endorsing anyone in the primary season. I understand why Sanders supporters want a more forceful statement, but it is still early. In April 2016, Sanders told a rally, Quote, I don't believe that she is qualified if she is, through her super PAC, taking tens of millions of dollars in special interest funds. I don't think you are qualified if you have voted for the disastrous war in Iraq. I don't think you are qualified if you supported the Panama Free Trade Agreement, end quote, among other statements he made in that rally. Yet by July, Sanders said in a joint appearance, And I intend to do everything I can to make certain she will be the next president of the United States. And Clinton said, I can't tell you how grateful I am to be standing here with Senator Sanders, because I think both of us realize that each of our campaigns together represent the best of who we are. Although this came a couple days ago, it shouldn't pass without comment. The New York Times decided to do a reality show style reveal of its interviews and deliberations for how it selected the Democratic presidential candidate that it ultimately endorsed. Or should I say candidates? In the end, former Vice President Joe Biden wasn't in the top four picks among the people remaining in the race. The Times had some strong positive words for Senator Cory Booker, who had already dropped out. And instead of picking a single candidate, it chose two, Elizabeth Warren and Amy Klobuchar. Warren has slipped in polls from a top or near top position to running third or fourth in many matchups, while Klobuchar remains a good notch below, but has kept her commitment to staying in the race. The Times decision can be summarized as, well, we think Warren has a lot of great ideas that she's already explored at length, but if you need a moderate candidate, pick Klobuchar. Several wits on Twitter came up with a similar joke, which was, quote, the New York Times says it takes two women to do the job of one man, end quote. Okay, here's my TLDR on the endorsement. That's too long, don't read, but I said it. In a shorter form. Okay, anyway, here it is. Here's how they ran down the candidates. Sanders won't compromise too old. Warren can speak to all Americans, wants reform, not revolution, has proven herself effective, blames capitalism too much. Buttigieg, a bright future for this young man. Yang, provocative new ideas, please run in New York State. Bloomberg, a track record, but he's full of old, broken ideas and is avoiding campaigning. Biden, status quo ante is not an advance, and he's also too old. Klobuchar, a centrist they can believe in, who has progressive ideas. All right, but does an endorsement even move the needle? The Pew Research Center for the People and Press noted in a 2007 survey asking a thousand adults about endorsements that most kinds have no net effect. People largely said that a celebrity, media, or political endorsement didn't change their mind, and nearly equal numbers said that it made them more likely or less likely to vote for the recommended person, canceling out the effect of the endorsement in any case. For a local newspaper, 69% said no difference, 
14% said it made them more likely, and 14% said less likely. The same was true with similar numbers for the governor of your state, Oprah Winfrey, and Bill Gates. Okay, so who did convince people to change their mind? A few percentage points more people were likelier to vote for a candidate falling outside the 3.5% margin of error in the survey if Alan Greenspan, then the head of the Federal Reserve, or, quote, your minister, priest, or rabbi, end quote, had made the nod. Interestingly, it was easier to find people who would substantially change people's minds negatively. Their recommendation would lead to a less likely vote, as much as 20% less likely to 5% more likely. That included Tiger Woods, Jay Leno, Toby Keith, Kanye West, Angelina Jolie, Bill O'Reilly, and, remember, this was 2007, Donald Trump. Finally, it's your dose of castor oil for the day. Let's check in with the impeachment. Well, uh, I've been off uh, from the podcast since last Wednesday, so I'm sure nothing at all has happened. Oh, good gravy. All right, that was faux surprise. As you can tell, over the weekend, the House managers for the impeachment filed a lengthy brief laying out the details of the charges. Trump's attorneys responded with a brief, not very legally worthy document, but later filed a lengthy one. It makes the case that Trump withheld aid to force Ukraine to investigate corruption. The House released its rebuttal this morning with point-by-point -point refutations. Trump yesterday appointed several Republican House members to advise his impeachment defense team, although they have no formal role in the trial. This includes some of Trump's most ardent and shoutiest defenders, such as Jim Jordan of Ohio, who is unable to keep his suit jacket on. Today, the trial in the Senate started in earnest, or at least the battle over the ground rules got underway. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell had not consulted Democratic senators over the trial's ground rules and said they would largely follow the rules set for the impeachment of Bill Clinton. In that trial, a group of senators from both parties set mutually agreed upon rules. McConnell released a draft yesterday. The House impeachment managers released a statement this morning that read in part, quote, his resolution deviates sharply from the Clinton precedent and common sense in an effort to prevent the full truth of the president's misconduct from coming to light. In the Clinton case, the president provided all of the documents, more than 90,000 pages of them, before the trial took place. And in the Clinton case, all of the witnesses had testified before the Senate trial began. End quote. However, the draft that McConnell introduced on Tuesday had changed slightly. The original draft called for 24 hours of arguments by representatives for each side of the impeachment case carried out over just two days, meaning sessions which would start at 1 p.m. could last until 1 a.m. at least for four days, maybe a lot longer. Democrats balked, and apparently enough Republicans too. The rules as introduced changed that to three days, allowing for essentially three eight-hour sessions, most of which will happen while most Americans are still awake. The rules also automatically introduce all House evidence into the Senate trial, something McConnell had originally tried to make into a separate vote. There's clearly GOP pushback happening behind the scenes. McConnell was able to include an all-or-nothing vote for testimony. If the rules pass, and McConnell says he has 53 votes in favor already and only a simple majority is needed, then the full set of opening arguments would occur over at least six days starting tomorrow. Only at that point would a vote happen about the Senate subpoenaing witnesses and allowing additional testimony. If that vote gets a majority, then there would be further negotiations on witnesses and subpoenas. While four to six Republican senators support a vote on this topic, or so some have said, it's entirely unclear if the necessary four or more required for a majority would vote for any particular witness. 
Remember, there's a clock ticking. The president's supporters in the Senate and elsewhere want the trial over and the vote taken that finds him not culpable of the impeachment issued in the House before his upcoming February 4th State of the Union address. Democrats will likely attempt to lengthen and delay the proceedings in both legitimate and politically expedient ways to bump it as close to the speech as possible, if not extending over it. Senators are not allowed to talk, read, or use electronic devices during the trial. As the New York Times noted, quote, senators will be confined to their desks, forced to stash their cell phones in cubbies, and barred from speaking, even in hushed tones, as seven House impeachment managers and Mr. Trump's defense team debate whether the president committed high crimes and misdemeanors, end quote. Each morning, the Senate Sergeant-at-Arms will use an 1868 formulation and announce, all persons are commanded to keep silence on pain of imprisonment. Well, no one's been imprisoned by the Senate in a while, but I would like to recommend that movie theaters have ushers state this exact thing before every screening in the future, please. Democratic Senator John Tester, a Montanan farmer, told the New York Times, quote, I sit on a tractor for 18 hours a day and my cell phone doesn't work. This is like heaven to me. I think it's going to be really interesting and not having a cell phone is like, that's my dream job, end quote. The only bright spot I can find in impeachment news is that senators are allowed to drink either water or milk. The Senate rules state, Senate rules do not prohibit a senator from sipping milk during his speech. This is due to a precedent from 1966 in which a senator asked for a ruling as to whether he could drink milk during a session. The presiding officer said, yes. And that's the election roundup for today. I am your host, Glenn Fleischman. You can find this podcast on Twitter at Election Podcast or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Election Ride Home. I am also on Twitter at Glenn F. That's G-L-E-N-N-F like Frank. If you like printing and typographic history as much as I do, check out my Tiny Type Museum project at tinytypemuseum.com and find this and other Ride Home podcasts at ridehome.info. Tune in again tomorrow for the next update. Thanks for listening and have a pleasant late afternoon or evening. Mm-hmm.